Yes, indeed. It is all about climbing higher and burning brighter. Welcome to another episode of Untapped Potential with Dr. Simone right here on TDN Radio. I always look forward to spending this time with you each and every Tuesday at 5.30 Eastern Time as we come together to take a much-needed mental break from all the stress and the trials and tribulations of the world, and we spend some time just getting powered up for another week of goal setting, another week of moving our lives forward. So welcome, welcome to the program here in Georgia. It is a beautiful and sunny day, and I hope that it is beautiful and sunny wherever you're joining us from. For us, of course, if you are a regular listener, we want to thank you for your support. Thank you for always being here each and every Tuesday at 5.30 Eastern Time. And of course, if this is your first time listening to the program, welcome on board. We hope to make you a regular listener. So as we begin, we always like to remember to begin the week with gratitude, with a spirit of gratitude. And we also keep in mind our brothers and sisters in Texas who are currently experiencing some difficulty in terms of not having water and not having electricity. So we keep them in our thoughts and we keep them in our minds and we pray that everything will work out to the benefit. And of course, we have a packed show for you today. Today, we are celebrating Black History Month and we have two featured guests. We have Dr. Percy Julian and Dr. Gladys West, who made significant contributions in their individual fields. So we want to make sure that we celebrate our Black heroes. And so today we will celebrate Dr. Percy Julian and Mrs. Gladys West for their contributions to our society. So again, welcome to the program. Don't forget to stay until the end of the program to find out exactly who will be our next guest for next week. And we have... Great news. We have a brand new sponsor to the program that we are very happy to announce. This program is brought to you today by BuyDominicaOnline.com. So for all your Dominican products, you now have the option to order from the U.S. So whether you're in the U.S., Canada, or the U.K., we encourage you to visit BuyDominicaOnline.com for all your Dominican products. So we certainly want to say thank you to Buy Dominica Online for coming on board to sponsor this program. So again, welcome. Uh, We're looking forward to spending this time with you. I am looking forward to spending this time with you. So let's take this number from Beres Hammond, a song entitled, I am alive as we remember to celebrate life, to celebrate community and to celebrate togetherness. So enjoy this number from Beres Hammond, a song entitled, I am alive as we get Gonna lift my voice and praises. Gonna shout it, gonna sing it loud. Up in the morning, I say my prayer. Thank you, Father, for another day. Let me clear it right away. I'm alive, yes. I'm alive, my money in the bank. Oh, no rent. Here I am. Still give thanks. Ask me how. I don't know. I ain't no bro. But I'm alive, 
of being grateful for life and being grateful for all our blessings let's enjoy this one as well another track from Barris Hammond what can I say I'm a huge Barris Hammond fan <laughs> so let's enjoy this one as well from Barris Hammond a track entitled giving thanks Just enough for me to concentrate One by 
blessings Getting close to goals that I'm setting If I make mistakes, correct me, don't you hesitate son of Alabama slaves, yet he went on to become one of America's great scientists. He had to fight to overcome the odds of being a black man in America. The chemical world was a club, and outsiders were not really all that welcome. We live, for the most part, in a highly stressed, very competitive environment. Outside the laboratory, he faced challenges of a different kind. Once the violence began, Anna and I felt we had no choice but to stay. My dad was angry when he came home and clearly ready to fight. For more than a century, we have watched the denial of elemental liberty to millions of black people in our Southland. He found freedom in the laboratory his science helped unlock the secret chemistry of plants, a discovery that would help relieve one of the most crippling human diseases and plunge him into one of the fiercest battles in the history of science. This is one of the towering figures of chemistry in the 20th century and one of the great African-American scientists of all time. A brilliant chemist, a volatile personality, a man whose devotion to science would not be denied. This man was exhibit A of determination and never giving up. Do you state your full name for the record? My name is Percy Julian. Every spring in Oak Park, Illinois, people from all over the village would go out of their way to see the explosion of color at the home on East Avenue. The 
tulips just went on forever. My dad, he'd be out there in his black beret, and my sense was that he had this love affair with, with, with growing things. What many passers-by didn't realize was that the tulip grower was also one of America's great scientists. Ladies and gentlemen, essentially I'm going to talk with you about three plants. Three marvelous plants that make the words of the psalmist come true and ring true again. Consider the lilies of the field. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet Solomon in all his glory was never arrayed like one of these. It was not simply the beauty of plants that captivated Percy Julian, but their ability to produce an endless variety of powerful chemicals. In the 1930s, Julian set out to tap what he called the natural laboratories of plants to make a new class of drugs that would help millions of people. Spoiled? Julian fought through extraordinary what, what obstacles to make a place for himself in a profession and a country divided by race. The message from white society was very clear. It's not your achievement or your merit or your accomplishments that matter. It's the color of your skin. And because of that, you're rejected. Yet over and over again, he doesn't let this stop him. He presses on, sure that his vision of where he wants to go and how he wants to get there is right. After Percy Julian, nobody could say anymore that the blacks couldn't do science because he was at the very top of his profession. The story I will tell you tonight is a story of wonder and amazement, almost a story of miracles. It is a story of laughter and tears. It is a story of human beings. Therefore, a story of meanness, of stupidity, of kindness and nobility. One beautiful morning, when I was 12 years old, I went berry picking on my grandfather's farm in Alabama. I shall never forget how beautiful life seemed to me that morning. Under the spell of an Alabama forest. But in the midst of that beauty. I came across a Negro body hanging from a tree. He had been lynched a few hours earlier. He didn't look like a criminal. He just looked like a scared boy. On the way back, I encountered and killed a rattlesnake. And for years afterward, every time I saw a white man, I involuntarily saw the contours of a rattlesnake head on his face. Many years later, a reporter asked me, what were my greatest nightmares from my childhood in the South? I told him, white folks and rattlesnakes. Percy LeVon Julian was born in Montgomery, Alabama in 1899, at a time when Southerners lived under a system of forced segregation called Jim Crow. I think the greatest consequence of Jim Crow is fear. You knew if you said the wrong thing, or went in the wrong door, or drank out of the wrong, or the wrong water fountain, any of those things could lead to your death. To shelter his children from this oppressive atmosphere, Julian's father turned to the world of ideas. Every penny my father could scrape together went into building a wonderful library for his children, for the public library was closed to us. My father created in my imagination brave new worlds to conquer. As a young man, James Julian had been a schoolteacher. His wife, Elizabeth, was a teacher, too. They believed education offered the path to a better life for black people. Denied his own chance to go to college, James made it his mission to send his children instead. But it would not be easy. In Montgomery and across most of the South, public schools for black children simply stopped after the eighth grade. The message from white society to black students was that you should have just enough education to be good field hands and good laborers, cooks and maids, and so forth. With no high school to attend, Percy Julian completed two years at the local teacher training school for Negroes. In 1916, with barely a 10th grade education, Percy Julian became the first member of his family to live out his father's dream. 
During the hectic week of preparations, my father had taken me aside for a long talk. This is the greatest moment of your life, he told me, but it is also a great responsibility, for you are now beginning to create a family. A family of educated people. There they were, three generations of hope and prayer, weaving to a fourth generation that was going off to college. And why? Because they had the simple faith that the last great hope of the earth is education for all the people. Julian's destination was DePaul University, a small liberal arts college in Greencastle, Indiana. DePaul had accepted a few black students since the Civil War, but expected them to know their place. A black student entered a white university. If they did know before they arrived, they found out pretty quickly that they were not welcome in the university or in the community. Instead of being assigned to a dorm like his white classmates, Julian was shown to an off-campus room with a slot jar for a toilet. I soon got up enough courage to ask Mrs. Townsend what time we would have dinner. But she tersely informed me that she was not expected to give me my meals. Julian wandered the streets of Greencastle for a day and a half before finding a diner that would serve a Negro. He would continue to take his meals off campus until he learned of an opening at the Sigma Chi fraternity. In exchange for waiting on his housemates and firing their furnace, Julian could have a room in the basement. He soon felt at ease in the fraternity. The classroom was a different matter. You sit in the classroom with kids who read things that you never heard of. They've taken math courses that you haven't taken. And so one of the academic challenges is trying to hold on until you can catch up. For two years, Julian would take remedial classes at a local high school in addition to his normal course load. I remember writing to my father. I know you and mother have always known what was best for me. But I think you made a mistake by sending me to compete with these white students. They are so brilliant that I am always hopelessly behind. But by his sophomore year, Julian was gaining fast on his white classmates, thanks in part to the encouragement of chemistry professor William Blanchard. Blanchard had what one student called a contagious enthusiasm for discovering the unknown. Under his tutelage, Julian began to dream of a career as a research chemist. Only one African-American had ever earned a doctorate in chemistry. His name was St. Elmo Brady. Julian decided that if Brady could do it, so could he. After four years, he graduated Phi Beta Kappa and first in his class. At commencement time, my great-grandmother bared her shoulders and she showed me for the first time the deep scars that had remained from a beating she had received when one day during the waning days of the Civil War, she went through the Negro quarters and cried out, get yourselves ready, children. The Yankees are coming. The Lord has heard our prayers. And then proudly she took my Phi Beta Kappa key in her hand and she said, this is worth all the scars. Encouraged by Percy's success, his father moved the whole family north to Greencastle to send the rest of the children to DePaul. Eventually, Julian's two brothers would become doctors and his three sisters would earn master's degrees. I shall never forget an anxious week of waiting in 1920 to see if I would get into graduate school. I stood by as day by day my fellow students in chemistry said, I'm going to Illinois, I'm going to Ohio State, or I'm going to Michigan. Where are you going, they asked. And they answered for me, you must be waiting for the Harvard plum. <laughs> I could stand the suspense no longer. I went to Professor Blanchard, and there he showed me numerous letters from men who had really meant God to me, great American chemists of their day. Discourage your bright colored lad, they wrote. We couldn't get him a job when he's done, and it'll only mean frustration. Why don't you find him a teaching job in a Negro college in the South? He doesn't need a PhD for that. What happened to Julian was something that would have been common throughout the land. To have a good college education was way beyond uh, anything that one would expect for an African-American. And so there's a sense that he'd had enough. Stop here, 
be content with this, go back and teach your people. In 1920, Julian reluctantly returned to the South to teach, but he clung to the dream of earning his PhD. At 21, he was embarking on a quest that would last more than 10 years. His first stop was Fisk University in Nashville, one of the best Negro colleges in the country. His idol, St. Elmo Brady, had studied at Fisk. But Julian chafed at the limitations of the black college system, overcrowded classrooms, inadequate libraries, and poorly equipped laboratories. After two years, he was on the move again. Julian had won a scholarship to study chemistry at one of America's most famous universities. No Negro has yet obtained his master's degree in chemistry at Harvard. And so I'm up against a hard situation again. When Julian arrived at Harvard in 1922, the racial climate was probably worse than it had been uh, at any point in the 20th century. President Abbott Lawrence Lowell had set the tone by banning black students from the dorms in Harvard Yard. Julian sailed through his first year and earned his master's degree in the spring of 1923. He continued his studies for three more years, but left Harvard without his doctorate. Years later, he would bitterly tell friends he had been denied the teaching assistantship he needed to stay in school. If you're going to be a teaching assistant and teach white students, that was no-no. I mean, that, that's just hardly acceptable at that time in that place. If he were denied that, he also denied the opportunity to finance education. Julian spent an unhappy year teaching at a small black college near Charleston, West Virginia. Then his fortunes turned. He was invited to join the faculty at the nation's most distinguished black university, Howard University in Washington, D.C. He was replacing St. Elmo Brady, who was returning to Fisk. Julian went straight to work, designing a new chemistry building and honing a distinctive lecture style. I should warn you that scientists are traditionally poor speakers because they have a hard time letting go of their gobbledygook. Ladybird, ladybird, fly away home becomes impossible when you must call the ladybird coccinella by punctata. <laughs> Despite his growing stature at Howard, Julian was still determined to earn his PhD. In 1929, he finally got his chance. He won a fellowship that allowed him to take a leave from Howard to study at the University of Vienna in Austria. He was about to begin a lifelong inquiry into the chemistry of plants. For thousands of years, long before there was such a thing as the science of chemistry, people were fascinated by plants because they knew that plants contained substances that could affect people. I mean, coffee will keep you awake. Tobacco contains something that will calm your nerves. Foxglove contains an extract that'll affect your heart. And the whole goal of chemistry in the early part of the 20th century was to understand what these natural products were, to characterize their chemical structures, and to figure out how to make them. This was called natural products chemistry. It was the main branch of chemistry. And in 1929, Vienna, in Austria, was the seat of natural products chemistry. And that's why Percy Julian went there. Julian arrived at Vienna's Chemische Institute with huge crates of ground glassware, items the Viennese students had heard about but never seen. The unpacking became a big ceremony surrounded by fellow students who oohed and awed about the wonders that came out of these crates. Among the onlookers was Josef Pikel, a chemist who had become one of Julian's closest friends and collaborators. They had come to Vienna to study under the renowned scientist Ernst Speth. Speth was a giant in the field of natural products chemistry. He had a particular interest in a family of compounds called alkaloids. Of all the natural products, the ones that fascinated people the most were the alkaloids, because they seemed the most powerful. A thimbleful of some alkaloids would bring down an elephant. It's believed that many alkaloids evolved to protect plants from organisms that might eat or harm them. But these same compounds can have unexpected effects on people. We now know, for example, that it's an alkaloid caffeine that's responsible for the stimulant effect of coffee beans. We also know that it's an alkaloid called nicotine that's the calming influence in tobacco plants. Other alkaloids are things like morphine, strychnine, cocaine, a whole host of things that we now know are drugs, turn out to be plant alkaloids. 
By 1929, it was known that an alkaloid from the root of a common Austrian shrub called Corridalis cava was effective in treating pain and heart palpitations. Spate asked Julian to find out why. And so the question was, which compound, which precise compound in this tuber is responsible for the biological effect that one is seeing? Isolate the active ingredient in Corridalis cava and then identify its chemical structure. This was the challenge Julian would have to meet to earn his PhD. Free at last of teaching and administrative duties, he threw himself into his research as never before. For the first time in my life, I represent a creating, alive, and wide-awake chemist. I recognize that publications and research will be for me as natural a thing as going to bed and eating a meal. Truly, I was the luckiest guy in all the world to land here. You are listening to Untapped Potential with Dr. Simone. Whether it's navigating jet airliners, providing directions to a new restaurant, or geotagging your social media pictures, few imagine the impact GPS would have on modern society, including 88-year-old Gladys West. I never would have thought that I could sit in a car and, you know, <laughs> it says, turn left, turn right. <laughs> no. <laughs> For 42 years, Gladys was employed by the U.S. Navy. As a mathematician, she would help lay the groundwork for many of the government's orbital satellite projects. That includes what became the Global Positioning System, or what we call GPS. We didn't do all the GPS stuff that's uh, for the car and all, and, you know, we, we didn't actually do that, but what we did was got the accuracy of where things were located all around the world and stuff in its database. Born in 1930, Gladys grew up on her family's farm just south of Richmond, Virginia, where she learned the value of hard work. And that would pay off for Gladys, who wanted more than what life on a country farm could offer. You could get a scholarship if you were the first or second in your high school graduating class. So right off, you know, <laughs> I was Johnny on the spot, yeah, doing all my work all the time. She finished at the top of her high school class, earning her a full scholarship to what was then called Virginia State College, a historically black school in Petersburg, Virginia. The teachers were encouraging me to major in math because they thought that I would be good. Again, Gladys finished at the top of her class and went on to complete her master's. In 1956, she accepted a job at the Naval Support Facility in Dahlgren, Virginia. The space race was just taking off, and computers were the wave of the future. It was really an excitement, you know. They promised us that they would teach us, you know, how to communicate with this computer and, and all this stuff, you know. So, I, I know in me, I, I was ready to, <laughs> you know, to work hard with it. And work hard she did. With the success of the space program, NASA was beginning to place satellites into orbit. Gladys was tasked to help write and program code, needed to process the enormous amount of data coming in. You have a long equation in there, certain coefficients that go along with each term. You have to generate them, get, get them accurate and all. Our program encoded all those equations and we checked them out um, by hand cases and all, and they were passed on to the next level. The work was long and tedious. Every equation checked and rechecked for accuracy. You didn't want to cause anybody else in a hole up or in a trouble about something that you had done that prevented them from, from making progress. So you want to have to make sure that uh, they could depend on anything that you sent. It was this tenacity and dedication that drew the attention of the fellow mathematician, Ira West. The two dated for 18 months before getting married in 1957. She wasn't an easy catch, you know. Let me tell you, I had to work hard for that. <laughs> I always think of Ira, and I always tell him, I said, he played more than I did. 
Meanwhile, the civil rights movement was sweeping the country. Gladys and Ira wanted to show their support, but government employees weren't allowed to participate in public demonstrations. So the couple decided the best way to help was to change perceptions and work even harder. We just were pushing, 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 pushing. We couldn't uh, participate directly, but indirectly in the situation. That was another reason why I felt that I always had to be, be my best. And I always uh, had to like be a role model. In the years that followed, they both continued their work for the Navy on numerous projects. In 1978, Gladys received a commendation for her work and was promoted to project manager of the CSAT radar altimetry project, the first satellite that could collect data across the ocean's surface. It was always interesting. We were working with people and doing something that was important and that's going to be used by the government and all. You got to make sure <laughs> you're doing everything right because you're part of this big thing that's happening. As she always had, Gladys stayed true to herself, striving to be defined by her competence and not by the color of her skin. I think I was most happy when I got to the point that I could be independent and I could uh, troubleshoot big programs and be a help to the uh, analysts who had helped to generate uh, the program. When I could talk to them, you know, it's sort of like be a part and understand. Um, I think that was the best feeling I had. Even after retiring in 1998, Gladys stayed busy, completing her PhD in philosophy and writing her memoirs. For all of her accomplishments, commendations, and recognition she has received over her career, Gladys understands there is only one who she can credit for the direction her life has taken. I think everybody should have God in their li lives so they understand. And I can just about see the complete circle. And I can go back and I can look and see what he did and where he put me and where all along. And I was saying, just, it's just amazing that I didn't understand at the time exactly what was happening. But he was there and he was there. These are the hands that will hold you in times of sadness. 
wipe tears from your eyes and be your strength. enjoyed learning just a little bit more of, about two of our African-American heroes and the contributions they made in their individual fields. So thank you for staying with me. Thank you for hanging out here with me on Untapped Potential on TDN Radio. And I have to tell you, we are doing some incredible work in terms of promoting who we are as Dominicans, promoting who we are as Caribbean people, and promoting anyone who has Caribbean heritage. Because I think it is so important that we we know our identity because for me, my identity is my strength. I know what the people who came before me went through. And every time I think about what they went through to ensure that I can enjoy the life that I currently live, I remember to be grateful. So we continue to celebrate who we are via Facebook Lives. And one of the very important ones that we did recently is that we celebrate celebrated the oral story telling traditions of Dominica. And you know, it doesn't matter where you're from. If you're from Antigua, Barbados, St. Lucia, as a matter of fact, anywhere in the world you are from, there are certain oral stories that are handed down from generation to generation. And my concern is that with all of us being so scattered all over the world, we are losing the stories that someone like me who was born and raised in Dominica grew up on. So I had this in incredible idea to bring together a couple of Dominicans who could share their stories, share their experiences of what it was like growing up in Dominica and listening to stories from the elderly folks in the villages. So we had this wonderful conversation on Facebook Live a couple of days ago where we talked about all the legends and the myths of Dominica, including the Sukuya and the, the Lugahu and all the stories that scared us to death <laughs> as children growing up in Dominica. So I want to just give you a little bit of a hearing of what we did on Facebook Live as we continue to celebrate and promote who we are as people of Caribbean heritage. So take a listen to some of what we discussed during our Facebook Live. And of course, since I know that many of my listeners are not on social media, I have gone ahead and uploaded this video to pushpast10.com. Again, P-U-S-H-P-A-S-T, the number 10.com. So you too can enjoy the Facebook lives that we do to promote and celebrate our Caribbean heritage. So take a listen. And then on pushpast10.com, you can also find other videos. For example, in honor of Carnival Tuesday, we had a restaurant from Florida and it's called Julia's Kitchen. The lady's name is Julia. She's actually a registered nurse, but her passion is cooking. And she did us a wonderful favor by showing us how to make crab callaloo. So if you're from Dominica, you know that a carnival staple in terms of our cuisine is crab callaloo. So Julia was able to show us the process, walk us through the process of making crab callaloo. And we certainly enjoyed having her show us her process. So again, if you're interested in seeing how we are celebrating being Dominican, being of Caribbean heritage, being from the Caribbean, you can check out my website at pushpast10.com. And while you're there, don't forget that you can also check out the podcast of all our previous episodes. And there is also
also the link to my YouTube channel where you're able to see the videos of all our previous guests. So we're getting organized. We're putting this work together. We're creating a body of, of information, a body of memories that we can all share and we can all enjoy. So take a listen. This is from the Facebook Live that we did on oral storytelling traditions out of Dominica. And maybe you're from another island <laughs> and you will come on and you will tell us about your oral storytelling traditions because we do not want to lose those precious memories of growing up in the Caribbean. So take a listen. This is from our Facebook Live, Oral Storytelling Traditions, and then stay tuned until the end so we can tell you about our next upcoming guest and what to expect in the weeks ahead. So take a listen. doesn't matter where in Dominica you were born and raised, chances are you have a story about a sukuya, a lugahu, and who in the neighborhood was accused of doing what. So that is what we're here for today. We're here to celebrate our culture. We are here to celebrate our traditions. So coming in as we get ready to share with you. So I want to introduce uh, the other contribution contributors to the program, uh, Dr. Thompson Fountain and Mrs. Tina Bell de Ramon. So uh, Tina, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Tina. Um, most of you would know me as those way back as Tina Bell. I am glad to be on the program this afternoon and I'm telling you it's going to be something we're all going to enjoy it because we, I have some stories and I'm sure Thompson has to share. We're going to have a jolly good time. Ah. Yes, and we're looking <laughs> forward to it. Thompson. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. I am, you know, I tell you, um, Simone and Tina, it's, it's so good to be on this program. It's so good to be talking about something that is really much a part of us, part of our history part of our heritage, part of what we call ourselves as Dominicans. And I'm really delighted to be with both of you this, um, well, I was going to say tonight, but it's afternoon your time. I'm mm -hmm. delighted to be on and, and yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. Lots of interesting information there. Certainly looking forward to that. Yes, and of course, we, we welcome everyone who's joining us on Facebook as well, everyone who will join us on TDN Radio and Q95 for Lifeline on Sunday morning. So, Thompson, can we just begin with a historic perspective of the whole concept of uh, Sukuya and Lajabez and Lugahu? By the way, what's the difference between a Lajabez and a Lugahu? <laughs> 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 okay, um, it's good that you are, and it's important that we define that. You know, uh, a larger blessing is, is is the female, and so a larger blessing is really the the sukuyan. You can say larger blessing or sukuyan as a female part of the of the thing, and then you have the lugawu that is male. Yeah, so you have the lugawu male, and then larger blessing or sukuyan as the female. Um, Interestingly enough, the, the history of, of that type of, of thing comes back to us from Africa. In fact, the, the, um, our ancestors who came from West Africa brought that, those beliefs with them uh, to the slave plantations. And one of our most famous, um, in fact, our most famous uh, Maroon leaders, Bala, was a firm believer in Obia. And in fact, one of the things when he, when when um, Bala was eventually caught, when he when, when he was shot by the um, by the British, and he told them that they should bury his obia before him, mm. and the only things he things he asked about were three things. He asked about his his wife Kanda, his son, and his obia, and he told them that they should bury his obia before him. And his obia consisted of some human hair that he had involved um encased in a in a bag human here and some other items now i want to read I, I want to read for you as we start this conversation i want to read uh from a newspaper going back to 1816 and it gives a very interesting account of the the whole where it kind of originated and it talks about the fact that the the slaves on the plantations they practice this form of what they call obi, 
Now, Obi goes back to the ancient Egyptians. And what happened was when the Africans who practiced this in West Africa, they practiced that type of, it's kind of occult or high science. They brought it with them. And a writer, a British writer wrote in, in 1816, he, he, des he described some of the Obiamen, women called Sukuya and Lugawo as such. I want to read this very quickly. It says, these ugly, loathsome creatures thus became oracles of woods and unfrequented places and were resorted to secretly by the wretched in mind and by the malicious for wicked purposes. Obi and gambling are the only instance I have been able to discover among the natives of the Negro land in Africa in which they effect at the, any effort at combining ideas have ever been demonstrated. The science of Obi is very extensive. Obi, for the purpose of bewitching people or consuming them by lingering illness, is made of grave dirt, hair, teeth of sharks and other creatures, blood, feathers, eggshells, images in wax, the hearts of birds, and some potent roots, weeds, and bushes, of which Europeans are at this time ignorant, but which were known for the same purposes to the ancients. Certain mixtures of these ingredients are burnt or buried very deep in the ground, or hung up on a chimney, or laid under the threshold of the door of the party to suffer, with incantation, songs of curses performed at midnight regarding the aspect of the moon. The party who wants to do the mischief is also sent to burying grounds or some secret place which spirits are supposed to frequent to invoke his dead parents to assist them in the curse. A Negro who thinks himself bewitched by Obi will apply to an Obi man or Obi in coma or woman for cure. These magicians will interrogate the patient after the part of his, the body most afflicted. This part they will torture with pinching, drawing with guards or calabashes, beating and pressing when the patient is exhausted by this rough magnetizing. The obi brings on an old rusty nail, a piece of twine, or an old toothbrush, or the jaw of a, of a rat, or a fragment of squat bottle, from the past and the patient is well the next day. So that is an account in going back to the year 1816 in a British newspaper where an observer noted the practice of Obi or Obia, because the word Obia came from the word Obi. Obi was the word they used in Egypt. And that was what was carried through to the Caribbean. So that is how we came into this whole notion of Obi, and it is most practiced uh, probably more heavily in Haiti, the idea that you, you can hurt somebody, that you can, you can do something evil to somebody. And these men and women became revered. They became revered. And in fact, the British initially, like in when slavery started in Dominica in 16, the British started importing slaves into Dominica in 1637. It took the British almost 200 years to understand the importance of Obia. And in 1816, in 1816, the British passed a law that actually punished, that actually put to death any woman or man, any Luga or Sukuya who was found, would be put to death. All right, the law was passed in 1816 by the, by the Dominica Parliament. It became Dominica's law that if anybody was caught in the act of Obia, which is what we're talking about, they would be put to death. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So again, if you're just joining us, we are here celebrating Dominica's oral story tradition. It's a collaboration of a number of people, including Dr. Thompson Fountain, uh, Mrs. Tina Bell de Ramon, as well as TDN Radio, Push Pass 10, and Q95 FM. So we're all coming together just to celebrate who we are, to celebrate our traditions, our culture, and the focus today is on our oral storytelling traditions, including all those scary stories we heard as children about, about Obia, Sukuya, Lugahu. So we're hoping that you will bring your stories as well. So if you have a story uh, along the same vein, feel free to share it if you're joining us on Facebook Live. So Tina, what would you like to say on the topic? Oh, well, actually, I think as, 
a child, our first experience of talking about Obera Sukia was the word Jambi. Mm-hmm. And when we were kids, everybody would sort of, if you do anything, they would scare us with the word Jambi. I remember as a little girl, I had a neighbor and she was like more like a bully to me when she wanted something of mine. And she'd say, I'm going to put your name on a, write it on a paper and put it in the cemetery for Jambi to take you. Now the thing is, I used to be so scared. You know, so the thing, you never thought for a woman, that was a child like you. Why the heck she going to the cemetery at night time to put your name? Right. She'd be scared too. But then that was just scared tactics. But, <laughs> but like everything else, we know we talk about Sukhiyas and the Lugawi and the Lugawi, the man and the Lajabless, the woman, who would have, normally she's portrayed as a pretty woman and appears to men and should have like one foot, like a, a hoof, like a, a goat's foot, right? And she would lure these this men away. And then when they did find themselves with the story they told afterwards, she, she ended up being an ugly woman. And she would trip them. She would just lure them towards and trip them into some place where they would find them either naked or something, you know? So these are the little stories, you know, about Sukuyas and Lugawut. And of course, the Sukuya stories that they would come into the house and suck you. Mm-hmm. you know that? So to avoid the sucking, you have to put salt or um, grains of salt, salt, mm-hmm. salt or sand at the front of the house. So that would stall them. So they would have to count it one by one. So naturally, by the time they get to whatever, daybreak would have come. So they couldn't enter the house. And garlic, of course. So these were some of the stories we heard about Sukuyas. But mine, I'm telling you, when you're a child and you get those stories and you go to bed, you're so scared. I used to cover my whole head with a sheet up to my eyes at nighttime because you're afraid of Sukuyas or any of those things coming and pulling your foot. And I'm, you know? wondering, I'm wondering if that was the purpose of the stories. Was it the purpose of the stories to keep children in line so they would be obedient? Yes, you know what I mean? To keep us in line, but with all the myths and legends, there is some, there's some truth to it, you know. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. so much truth to this Sukhya thing. I'm telling you, well, when you're small, you're scared of that. But as you grow older, you put that at the back of your mind. But then I had an experience which um, it's strange. It's not that I encountered the Sukhya, you know. But you know, we have this story about Sukuyas always, they have to remove their skin and they have to put it under a big stone. And then after they are done with all their night flights and stuff, they would get their skin back. <laughs> now, in my younger days, when I worked in the government um, service, government headquarters, there was a strange thing that happened. There was this woman they found by the river somewhere. It could be up east, you know, Delhi or somewhere. They found this woman by the river and she was, she was dead, of course, and she had no skin on. Really? No skin on. And you would have thought that was a myth, eh? the people just saying this stuff. But I think that was on Wibbs Radio. There was this station, local station called Wibbs Radio in those days. But added to that, you know, you're curious. And in those days... Well, the police photographer had gone and taken photos and the attorney general at the time was Leo Austin. And then some of us at government headquarters, his office was a floor above ours. We went to the office to look at those photos. And there was this lady, because they found it so strange. This picture of this woman, she had no like epidermis. She was just like, just clean clean and some people said that she was burnt but there was nothing to indicate that she was burned by acid or by fire it she was just clean from face to her toes because the photos were kind of enlarged and i all i don't know whatever happened to that case i guess maybe they just put that in the archives and forgot about it but that one was strange and then my whole thing about sukiyas was sort of opened up again you know, mm-hmm. and they were saying, was she a Sukuya? Why was she? What was the mystery? Nobody found out. She was just there. They got her, as I said, clean, nice skin, all the top skin off. 
Wow. So I don't know what was the mystery. Did you ever <laughs> did you ever hear about that story of um East um Thompson? No, I not of the specific one, but I, I, I heard of the fact that they had to take their skin off. That was a critical part of the of the initiation yeah. of what they had to do. Yeah. You know, remove the skin, put it in a, in a mortar pestle, pong it, and all of that. Um, yeah. you know, but I, I, I never heard of that one in particular. But it's amazing. I mean, for us as children, these were real. Uh-huh. That was not something that was imagined. That was real because you heard those stories. You believe them. In fact, every every label, you know what the label is? Yeah, uh, the firefly. The, yeah, the firefly. <laughs> was it Sukuya? <laughs> Hello, the Lalo was the bigger ones. The Lalo is the big guys. These were the local ones. And we would be terrified because at nights, remember, there was no lights in the country at the time. And, the, and then these things would be flashing by the window and your whole skin would start crawling because you're outside of the window looking up knocking on the because because obviously they're trying to lights on the inside by the candle lights on the so they're trying to come in and they're they're hitting against the you know the glass and you and there you're terrified because you were told bright lights there look out trying to come into the house now, you know and now, thompson tell the story of when you had to walk home at night <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I actually wrote about that uh, before, and that was that was you know because as I said, you grew up believing that and knowing that uh, you know Lalo and Lalo. And one night we had we had a meeting at the health center in Grand Forks. It was a uh, village council meeting, and I went as a kid, and I fell asleep. <laughs> when I got up, everybody had left. <laughs> everybody had had gone home. And I was up there, it was probably about midnight or so, and I had to walk home. My God, that was the most frightful, the most um, difficult, because everything that you ever heard about Luga or Tsukuya came back. Mm-hmm. So to begin with, I had to walk, and I am walking home, and I am so scared. You could hear my heart pounding from a mile. And I am walking and I, I expecting any time to be snatched. You know, I expecting a, a touch on my shoulder or something. Because for the first time I was I was exposed, you know, because mm-hmm. normally you inside and so on, you you even sorry if your siblings, but for the first time I was exposed, and I, that was the most terrible night for me. And I remember that up to this day, like it was yesterday. The fear, the the worry that a Sukwina or Luga would chase me down at night. And when I made it home, I could not believe that I was home and safe, you know. But it's that kind of thing, it's that kind of fear that you develop. But also, as children, we, we you know, not, not only did we hear about it, but people tell us, well, this person is a Sukhmian. Yes. yes. All right, Very this true. man is a Luka. So we actually believe that these people, had, and the other thing, let me just say before Chida comes in, the other thing that was so critical for us is that we were always told that we need to, we need to avoid these individuals. So you have to avoid looking at one, the Sukuyan. Don't let them touch your head. And I remember we were going to do a common entrance examinations and there was this girl, there was this lady, there was this young child that was walking with us. And the lady touched this child's head. Hmm. And this child cried from the time we left, from the time we reached Lapley, and the child cried throughout hmm. because by her parents and other people. Don't let anybody touch her because people are so queer. They will talk. So again, that was just a snippet of a Facebook Live that we did as we continue to celebrate who we are as Dominicans and Caribbean people. So again, if you would, if you are interested in seeing the entire video of how we are celebrating who we are, I encourage you to head over to my website, pushpast10.com, P-U-S-H-P-A-S-T, the number 10.com, to enjoy what we're doing. And of course, if you are on Facebook, you can feel free to follow me at pushpast10. And I am also looking forward to hearing from you with regards to any ideas you may have about how we can keep celebrating 
who we are because I truly believe in the power of our identity, in the power of those who came before us. The same way we celebrate our Black history heroes, I think it is also important to acknowledge who we are as Caribbean people, as people of Caribbean heritage. So thank you for hanging out with me. Thank you for staying with me. And if you are not aware, the song that you heard after the uh, tidbit from Facebook was from the Smith Brothers. They are out with a new track entitled You're the One. And as always, we love promoting the work of Dominicans and Caribbean people. So we are very happy that we were able to bring you this new song from the Smith Brothers entitled You're the One. And of course, show your support by visiting in their YouTube channel, thesmithbrothers.com. So, oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> their YouTube channel, The Smith Brothers. So again, on YouTube, they are The Smith Brothers. So show your support and share their work. So here we are at the end of the program. Again, thank you for being here with me. Thank you for joining me uh, for yet another episode of Untapped Potential with Dr. Simone. It's all my, always my pleasure to be here with you. And and stay tuned next week. We have another inspiring guest coming up. And this time we will have Mr. Brenton Hillier. So if you joined us last week, you know that we had Dr. Sheldon Hillier. Well, next week we will have his brother. <laughs> you know, greatness seems to run in certain families. So next week we will have his brother, Mr. Brenton Hillier. And he will tell us the importance of faking it until you make it. So again, next week, we are talking about how do you fake it until you make it. So you don't want to miss that episode of Untapped Potential. So set your reminder, Tuesday, 5.30 Eastern Time, right here on TDN Radio. And again, we have lots more inspiring guests, lots more opportunities to celebrate and promote who we are coming up. So you certainly want to follow us on Facebook and other social media outlets. As a matter of fact, we have an interview coming up with uh, Captain Arthur Senhouse out of Liat. So you don't want to miss that interview. He will share with us his own personal uh, struggles and successes and how he was able to rise through the ranks of Liat. And he will also give us an update on the Caribbean's airline, um, Liat, Liat, the Caribbean airline. So you don't want to miss when he will be with us. So again, set your reminder, let everyone know that the place to be each and every Tuesday at 5.30 Eastern time is right here on TDN Radio for Untapped Potential. And of course, don't forget to check out our other wonderful programming right here on TDN Radio. Take a look at our schedule. We go from Sunday to Sunday, giving you great music, great information, and great programming. So again, thank you for being here. It's been a pleasure being with you for yet another episode of Untapped Potential. And as we always say at the end of the program, don't forget your life story is your strength. So remember to tap into your potential each and every day as you work to as you work on your personal goals and you move your life forward. So remember, stay positive, stay engaged, uh, stay active until we meet again next Tuesday right here at 5.30 Eastern Time. You have yourself a wonderful and a 